It was go, go, go. And it felt sort of never ending. I would get up around, uh, well, around 5 a.m. and immediately reach for my phone to respond to emails or text messages. Then, of course, I would quickly get ready. I had about an hour commute. By the time I got into the office, it was usually around 6.30 or 7 in the morning. I usually skipped lunch during the day. If I did, I would, I would eat on the go. I would sort of eat on the run, drinking maybe seven, eight, nine, ten cups of coffee throughout the day just to try to stay well, energetic and, and focused. And I would often be at the office until five, six, seven at night. By the time I got home, I would spend a little bit of time maybe in front of the television. Often I would pop open my laptop or my Blackberry and, and begin responding to emails as I sort of vegged out on the couch and um, then go to sleep around you know, 10, 11 o'clock and start it all over again. I realized that my priorities were certainly out of whack. I didn't realize That's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about that. you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, the American work ethic. Hour for hour, we spend a lot more time at our jobs than people in other wealthy, highly developed countries. Maybe we're not all putting in the kind of days Joshua Milburn just described, but we have all complained of being overworked, burned out at some point. America is the only wealthy nation that does not require companies to give employees paid time off. And even when we do get paid vacation, an annual survey by the U.S. Travel Association finds at least half of us leave time on the table to the tune of 700 million vacation days that go unused every year. Why does it seem so hard for Americans to step back from work? Well, for one thing, hard work is woven into our identity as Americans and has been ever since a scrappy band of revolutionaries defeated the British Empire with nothing but grit. And then each wave of immigrants to America's shores brought new rags-to-riches stories that solidified in our collective psyche the power of hard work to transcend any obstacle. It was the American dream, you know. This is Joshua Fields Milburn again. I grew up really poor, and I thought the reason we were unhappy growing up is I didn't have a whole lot of money. And so at age 18, I went out and I got the entry-level corporate job. And I sort of spent the next dozen years just climbing the corporate ladder. So by age 27, I was the youngest director in our company's history, 140-year history. And a shining example of how a willingness to work hard can unlock the doors to success. I got to a point where I was working 60 or 70, sometimes even 80 hours a week while forsaking my health and forsaking the people around me and and that's really where consumerism also sort of came into the picture because I was working so much and I didn't feel particularly fulfilled by that. And so I, I started looking for fulfillment elsewhere. Meaning? Well, through stuff, through through buying a bunch of things that, um, well, with money I didn't have, you know, putting things on credit card. The, the average American has something like four credit cards right now. I had 14. I was I was accumulating things, thinking the happiness was right around the bend. You know, it must be somewhere in in the next purchase, whatever it might be, the luxury car, the the big house with more toilets than people, <laughs> the big screen TVs and multiple rooms. You know, I had a house with two living rooms. It was just me and my wife. Why do I need two living rooms? Why do I need three bedrooms and a full basement and a two and a half car garage? I don't even know what a two and a half car garage even means. <laughs> when you think about it. Um, and so, yeah, I had a lot of things, but those things just continued to add to the, the stress that was the life I had created through the corporate world. What caused you to rethink the life that you had made for yourself? Well, two things happened to me. My mom died and my marriage ended both in the same month. And... Those two events forced me to look around and, and just really start to question what had become my life's focus. And I realized I was so focused on so-called success and achievement, and especially the accumulation of stuff. I was living that American dream, but it wasn't my dream. My boss at the time was 
on his um, third divorce and his first heart attack, and he had just turned 50. And I realized like, oh, that's my path in the not too distant future. There was no end to the 80 hour work weeks. It wasn't like once you got the right promotion, now you're, you just have it made. No, you end up even working even more. You have to do things to justify that big salary. He was trapped on what turns out to be a dark side of the American dream. You might scramble your way all the way to the top, only to discover you're on a hamster wheel of work. And he couldn't just jump off because he'd accumulated six figures worth of debt to go with his six-figure salary. But he made a plan. I didn't have a specific end date because the end date was as soon as possible. I need to be debt-free as soon as possible. I radically pared down my life. I moved into a $500 apartment in Dayton, Ohio. I um, got rid of virtually every expense that I could. In fact, I didn't even have home internet for a very long period of time. And in fact, that was one of the best decisions I ever made was <laughs> to get rid of home internet. I, it was one of the most productive periods of writing in my life uh, because you know you you sort of get rid of the the distractions. And so I radically simplified my life in in a way that allowed me to pay off that debt. And it was a period of temporary deprivation. He also got really into minimalism, which would actually become his business later on. As I simplified my life, I realized that I needed to set up some new boundaries. And I did that in the corporate world by not answering my phone after 6 p.m. We're not responding to emails in bed at night or in the morning and, and just setting up some very basic boundaries. Was that hard? It was. It was harder to set than, than I anticipated because I looked at it as a badge of honor to be able to say yes to everything. But then I realized it wasn't about saying no. It was about saying yes to other things. I'm saying yes to time with people I care about. I'm saying yes to my health or exercise. I also realized that many of the things I was spending time on, I didn't actually value. And if I wanted to live a more meaningful life, I needed to align my, my short-term actions with my long-term values. When Joshua Milburn stopped searching for fulfillment exclusively through his job, he could see more clearly how he'd made his job the center of his identity. This is not just an American thing, but it is especially common here, since it's embedded in our founding story. What you do for work determines your value in society. So we humble brag about the long hours we're putting in. One of the first questions we ask a new acquaintance is, what do you do for work? And Americans overwhelmingly prefer government welfare programs that also require people to be working or looking for work. It was a few years after becoming a minimalist. Uh, it was Christmas, the holiday shopping season. This was the moment Milburn decided to jump off his hamster wheel. It was the time of the year where we were working 100 hours a week quite often because of Black Friday and all the weekends and doorbuster sales and Christmas shopping. And so it was the busiest time of the year for us, the most stressful time of the year. My boss came to me and said, hey, Josh, after this holiday shopping season, I need you to close eight stores and lay off 42 employees. And I knew that I had to do it or someone else was going to do it. So I actually came in the next day with a plan. And that plan had 42 names on it. My name was the first name on the list. My initial plan was to be a barista at a local coffee shop. And <laughs> no, no one believed me at the time because, you know, I'm this paragon of supposed success. And I decided to walk away from all of it. In fact, that first year, I took basically a 90% pay cut. I made $23,000 in 2011. And I was more financially secure that year than I had been any year the previous decade because I had finally realized what enough was. The blog about minimalism that he'd started with a former coworker began to make money. And that turned into books and speaking tours, a podcast and a couple of Netflix movies under the brand The Minimalists. And the thing is, Milburn still works a lot. Sometimes it's 20 hours a week, but sometimes more like 60. And he's okay with that. Because it's uh, not compulsory, right? It's not 
Um, I, I, it's not an expectation from anyone else. There's nothing wrong with doing work. There's nothing wrong with working at a corporation. But the difference now is that I find great meaning in what we do. My relationship to work now is one of joy. Has there been a point in the last dozen years since you quit the corporate world um, where you've actually caught yourself working too much? It's a different kind of work, obviously, for different ends, but you're like, okay, hang on, M balance here. Yeah, all, all the time. Although I, I don't really pursue balance um, because I, I, I still think balance is a bit of a misnomer, but there will certainly be seasons where I'm, I get really excited about something some project we're working on, especially if I see the finish line. But I've set up some boundaries there that prevent me from, from going off the deep end, so to speak. Every other Wednesday, my wife and I put our phones in a drawer and we just take the whole day off. And we often do something called screenless Saturdays. And, and so there, there are different ways that we can set up these boundaries. The biggest one is I only work on one major project at a time. Because I'm saying yes to that, it forces me to constantly be the guy who's saying no to a lot of things that seem exciting. They seem like great ideas, but I can't say yes to everything because if I do, I'll be saying no to what's actually important to me. Joshua Fields Milburn is co-founder of The Minimalists. Their latest book is Love People, Use Things. But if you're lucky enough to love your work, or at least feel like it's meaningful, couldn't that just compel you to work more? Exactly. If work is all of a sudden good for the soul, then if you can only find your true identity at work, well then, let's get to it. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Among the world's wealthiest countries, only a handful work more than the U.S. Our work days are longer. We work more weekends. We work more nights. Um, so there is like, you know, sort of a universal more going on. This is Jamie McCallum, professor of sociology at Middlebury College and author of Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream. He is skeptical of the widespread notion that America's unrelenting work ethic is what makes us a global power. Just look at other countries we consider our peers, he says. We work about three months per year more than the Germans, two and a half months more than the French, uh, but a month more than Canadians. If putting in longer hours is the secret to America's success, how are those countries succeeding while working less? And secondly, says McCallum, There are hundreds of countries in the world, obviously, that work consistently more hours than Americans do, and they're poor. So there's a, there's a problem with the correlation argument. How, then, did America become so converted to the gospel of hard work? Let's trace the history. There was once a time in the 1600s when the working day was long by some standards, but also quite leisurely. Um, and determined as much by seasonal changes and personal preferences as it was by many things. People worked the land to sustain themselves and bartered for what they couldn't make or grow. They weren't working for the sake of work itself. They worked to survive. So you get working days that start when the sun comes up and you get long periods of rest in the middle of the day. You get a calendar filled with holidays, religious and secular. As the industrial age dawns, people move to the cities and work life becomes more rigid. You're talking about the sort of, you know, foundations of industrial capitalism. So we're moving out of home-based work and piecework towards more factory consolidation. Um, by and large, it's, it's men um, who are putting in 13 hours, 14 hours a day. And they start to rebel. So in 1790-something was the first uh, strike for the 12-hour day by carpenters in Philadelphia. You had a strike in the early 1800s also, I believe, in Philadelphia to whittle it down to the 10-hour day. And we, we maintained um, sort of a, a normal 10-hour day for a long time. 
The labor movement hits a crescendo with the passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, establishing a 40-hour work week with the right to overtime pay and a minimum wage, at which point Americans settle into a straightforward relationship with work, says McCallum. Almost transactional, which was you go to work, you get a paycheck to feed your family, and that's it. But something starts to change around the 1970s. What is that? So you get it, you get a generation of factory workers, for example, industrial, blue-collar, unionized uh, auto workers, take just one example, who begin to be committed to saying, well, look, um, a lifetime of producing fenders or doors or wheels or whatever in the factory is no life at all. And we want jobs where we can use our mental faculties, be a little bit more creative, and that don't you know, drain us mentally, emotionally, and physically all day long. So there was kind of a search for a more creative and meaningful outlet in work. This dovetailed with the other change, which was in the 70s, the rise of the service economy, where people are far more likely to be working um, in offices and with computers or with each other. And what that, the significance of that is that it increases the kind of personal um, responsibility of people going to work, like where you have to show up and basically be nice to people um, to get things done and to sort of interact with people as friends or as a family or whatever you want to call it. And it involves a whole new level of personal buy-in. Enter the age of meaningful work in America. It's no longer a transactional thing where you punch in and punch out for the paycheck to support your real life, which happens off the clock. So this is a good development, and it's driven by the workers themselves, says McCallum. But then... Employers sort of turn that against people. If work is all of a sudden good for the soul, but if you can only find your true identity at work, well then, let's get to it. So it backfires then, and the message becomes, this work is meaningful, therefore more of it is better. Right, right, exactly. American employers found ways to convince workers that every job, no matter how menial was meaningful. And employees didn't mind because if you're going to bag groceries or take customer calls or input data all day, it's nice to feel like your efforts are making the world a healthier, happier, more orderly place. By the time workers began to realize they'd been lulled into longer hours with stagnant wages, labor unions had lost the power to push back effectively. So today in America, McCallum says the people working the most hours are at opposite ends of the income spectrum. It's the highly paid white-collar executives and the low-wage hourly workers with no benefits. But he says the people at the top have the much better deal. Let's say an investment banker who's been working 60-hour weeks has been working them for four decades. And though those hours have stayed the same, uh, their salary and wages and benefits, et cetera, have skyrocketed. So you get this sort of bifurcated thing where, yes, people in well-off white-collar jobs, especially men, do put in more hours, but they've had far more predictability and stability uh, over a long time, whereas for the most part, working-class people um, have had to increase their hours to maintain the same standard of living over the last few decades. So those are very different Reality. McCallum says the effects of rising income inequality, coupled with a legacy of discrimination in our society, put the American dream beyond the reach of many people, no matter how hard they work. Would we all find a better balance if we stopped expecting our jobs to be so meaningful, if we work to live rather than live to work? I mean, I think we all deserve the chance to do something with our paid work time that we find valuable and meaningful, right? Like if you're gonna make me work just to pay for a roof over my head and for food, which is, I personally don't think you should, but if you're going to, at the very least, you should give me something to do that like means something to me and my community. Wait, but you think we'd be better off if we didn't have to work in order to meet our basic needs? Yeah. Why? Well, why not? I mean, there's a, a, a grand moral argument that says healthcare, the right to shelter, and the right to food are human rights, and that they're inalienable. 
and you don't have to work for them. If we did have a society which could drastically reduce the amount of work time we do, all studies show that people would you know, voluntarily chip in to do more community service, more volunteer work, more stuff that means something to them. The goal of an economy, I think, should be to reduce the amount of necessary labor time to an absolute minimum. In a world where we no longer had to work to put food on the table and a roof overhead, many people would still choose to work because they enjoy it or want what the extra money can buy. Jobs that are necessary but unpleasant, though, would have to pay a lot more to attract willing workers. Radical as this sounds, McCallum says it is not impossible. We could all work less and maintain the same or a greater standard of living. The problem is not that we don't produce enough. The problem is that the gains from the incredible amount of stuff and services that we do produce is not shared among the people who produce it. There is plenty of money to go around in an economy like ours, says McCallum. It's just not shared equitably. For example, before the 1970s, when meaningful work became our mantra, American CEOs were making about 20 times what the average worker was making. Today, CEOs make 200 times more. Other wealthy countries that work a lot less have higher taxes on corporations and rich individuals, which they use to pay for generous government benefits like universal health care. They also force companies to share more of their profits with workers in the form of guaranteed paid time off and parental leave. And unlike the United States, those countries still have strong labor unions. The force that gave us better jobs, better pay at shorter hours with better safety conditions was unions. It was a collective struggle. So it's not shocking at all that we saw hours rise and pay stagnate or decline at the exact same time we saw the labor movement come under attack from the late 60s on. Do companies themselves have any motivation, do you think, to actually let their employees work less for the same pay? Uh, no. Nor will you ever convince an employer to pay you the same amount of money for less work. We'd all be working 12-hour days. If those carpenters in Philadelphia had tried to convince their boss that it would benefit them to pay them the same amount of money for 10 hours of work, that's not what they did. Like they fought tooth and nail, and it was a century-long struggle. Jamie McCallum's book is Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream. He's a professor of sociology at Middlebury College. And he might actually be wrong about American companies never volunteering to pay people the same amount of money for less work. In the United States, it's probably at this point in the low hundreds. I keep discovering new ones. That's hundreds of companies right here in America switching to a four-day work week without cutting wages. How does that work? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. There are lots of things we can do individually to find more balance in our work lives, like setting the boundaries Joshua Milburn talked about earlier. But personal solutions to problems of work-life balance can only take us so far, says Alex Pang. I'm the author of the books uh, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, and Shorter, Work Better, Smarter, and Less. Here's how. Pang's interest in work-life balance started with an exploration of how many of the most creatively successful people in history, authors, composers, inventors, Nobel Prize winners, did short bursts of really intense work layered with deliberate periods of leisure and napping. But he was really surprised to discover the concepts were catching on in business. I started seeing companies moving to four-day weeks or six-hour days. They were like Michelin-starred restaurants and a financial services firm over here and a software company here and a health and beauty company in this other place. The thing that really made me see that this was a big project was a company in Korea called Wuwa Brothers. 
you know, Korean startup culture generally looks at Silicon Valley where people are regularly working 80 hours and thinks, eh, bunch of whips. Um, no, I mean, you know, Korean, Korean along with Japanese has had to invent its own word for working yourself to death. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about basic assumptions about work time there. And Bong Jin Kim sees himself as very much a rebel in Korean startup culture. Bong Jin Kim is the CEO of Wuwa Brothers, which is... Sort of Korea's equivalent of DoorDash or Deliveroo. It was in a dinner meeting with Bong Jin Kim when Alex Pang first realized that this four-day workweek thing he'd been hearing about wasn't just a gimmick, that it could actually catch on. So this would have been uh, January 2019, very cold. And we were having dinner at a Japanese restaurant in Seoul um, at the Hilton, which is on top of a hill overlooking Seoul. So it was a very elegant place and a very elegant dinner. Bong Jin had a kind of very odd background for Korean CEOs. He's a sort of designer by trade, and he'd worked designing fonts before starting a company. Basically, he had the insight that you could redesign time and you use the same kinds of like design principles to redesign days that he had used previously to design software or to design you know services. And you can kind of iterate and experiment your way to a four-day week. Wuwa Brothers started experimenting in 2015. By then, the company had been around for several years and had grown from a scrappy startup to 500 employees. Bong Jin was looking to shake things up a bit. Wuwa Brothers was in a big growth phase. And they were competing for talent with, you know, they wanted to get the kinds of people who normally would go work at Samsung or Google. And... A startup can't compete with those big companies either in salaries or or perceptions of long-term career stability. But he realized we could compete on time. And offering a four-day week would attract the attention of people who normally might not give a little company like his a second look. So, you know, one of the first things was um, not opening until Monday afternoon. And so the idea being that you want to give people sort of Monday mornings off so that, you know, just to have more time for themselves. And he said this, you know, it took people a few weeks actually to kind of get used to this, right? The first couple of weeks, there were like a lot of people like just at the door at, you know, nine or 10, just waiting to get in. They just, they really didn't believe that this was real. Those Monday mornings off applied only to technical staff in Wuwa's corporate office. But when that went well, Bong Jin took the entire company to a four-day work week, including the delivery drivers who were on a rotating schedule. Where some people are on, let's say, like Sunday through Tuesday, others are there when, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and then the rest of the world doesn't realize that everyone is working a four or four and a half day week there. And did it cost the company more money because they had to hire more people to cover those other shifts now that everybody was only working for, you know, four days a week on the delivery side? No. And in fact, most companies discover they're able to reduce working hours for or for individual staff um, without cutting service and without also having to spend anything. So part of the premise here is that there is basically eight hours worth of, what, waste? (laughs) Wasted time (laughs) in a typical 40-hour week. So what is the experience like for employees that now are are effectively having to get everything that they would have gotten done in 40 hours and they have to now get it done in 32 instead? Well, first off, there are studies that show that in the average office, people lose about two or three hours a day to poorly run meetings, to technology-driven distractions, to the one quick question that turns into a 10-minute conversation that you know that you then have to spend another 10 minutes kind of, of uh, refocusing on what you'd been paying attention to before. So in a sense, the four-day week is already here for a lot of people. It's just buried underneath this organizational rubble and distractions. And so if you can get rid of that stuff, you actually can do a, go along way to doing five days worth of work in four. But does that feel like you're just on constant go mode for four straight days? It can, but that's that turns out not 
necessarily to be a bad thing. Hmm. Companies that do this successfully realize early on that they have to really empower workers and groups to figure out how to do this themselves because nobody knows, you know, no boss knows your job well enough to, t- to sort of micromanage you into doing it in four days rather than five. And when you give people that kind of control over their own time and that autonomy, that feeling of control translates into sort of a lower stress level even when you are always on and sort of always working. How is it that the employees had more control over their time? Right. So there were two major things in addition to or of making meetings shorter and having better meeting discipline that most companies do. One of them is um, doing a lot of stuff to reduce technology distractions and find ways for people to use technology to take boring or repetitive tasks off their plate. If you're one of these companies where everyone normally has 18 Slack channels going, um, you get rid of a lot of that or there are particular times of day when people are expected to interact with or you know electronic communications. The other thing is building in time for deep focused work that's separate from let's say you know meeting time or time with clients and different from social time. And so when people have an opportunity to you know to look at their calendars and say I've got these 3 hours you know that I can spend working on my most important stuff I don't have to answer the phone. I don't have to be in reactive mode. That's where that sense of control comes from. And that's where the productivity comes from. So the managers and the company, like the bosses, give all the employees control to say, like, I'm going to take the next three hours. I'm not going to respond to any emails or Slack messages. Exactly. You know, and very often those are three hours that everyone spends together working that way. Uh It's a little bit like, you know, going to the library during finals. You're not studying necessarily with other people, but being in a room with other people who are also concentrating can really help you concentrate. So back to Wuwa Brothers in Korea for a moment. This all works out really, really well for Bong Jin Kim and his company. As they are cutting working hours, their revenues go from 29 billion won to more than 300 billion. So that's more than a tenfold increase. So, you know, it's very clear that working a shorter work week, you know, didn't really slow them down very much. And what Pang didn't know, that January night in 2019, dining on Japanese cuisine was... Bong Jim was in the middle of negotiating a sale of his company for about $4 billion, ultimately, to a German consortium. So he had a lot of reason to be in a really good mood. Where in the world, then, is this idea of the four-day work week uh, not radical? Is there anywhere in the world where it's like the norm? Um, there were places where it's a li- where I think it's maybe a little bit less of a lift than others. Uh, so in Nordic countries, for example, at the national level, you see it being implemented in places as different as Iceland, whose public sector moved to a shorter work week in 2021, largely driven by the union movement and a concern about sort of gender equity. Um, and a few months later was followed by the United Arab Emirates. Right, a place that is, you know, very, very business friendly. How many com- companies do you think are really doing it in the United States, though? In the United States, it's probably the you know I keep discovering, keep discovering new ones. Um, it is probably at this point in the low hundreds, with the largest one, you know, having a few hundred people on staff, maybe a thousand at most. You know, you can see how this wouldn't work in places like, you know, big investment banks that have a well-developed pipeline bringing in young people from college, working them really hard for a couple of years, and then replacing them. They know how to exploit people very effectively, and people who go work in those places kind of, you know, accept the deal and they know what they're getting into. But, you know, more than 90% of American companies are small or medium-sized, right? They've got fewer than 100 people. And this is not a game that they could ever play very effectively, and especially these days after the pandemic and the Great Resignation. And so one of the reasons that the four-day week has not been slowed down by COVID, but in fact has been accelerated by it, has been a recognition that Nobody wants to stop working, but they want work to occupy 
less you know a less dominating place in their lives while still being meaningful and moving to a four day week is a way of satisfying both of those demands i had one founder you know tell me that before moving to a four day week he had unconsciously you know tended to hire basically guys in their 20s who he knew didn't have social lives who could sleep under their desks and once he moved to a four day week he realized you know it no longer impresses me that you don't have a social life. You know, what I really w- realized I had to look for were people who could get the job done in four days, who could prioritize, who could be ruthless with their time. And I found that in working moms. And so basically, in conventional labor markets, motherhood is something that for which women are penalized, whereas in four-day week companies, it's something for which women are able to demand a premium. Can the benefits of uh, working less for the same amount of pay ever be an option for the people who are working frontline service jobs in low-wage you know, shifts? The good news is that the four-day week is already offering those kinds of individuals, the same benefits that come to, you know, web designers or lawyers. Let me give you one quick example, which is a nursing home in Virginia called The Glebe, which is located outside Roanoke. This is a place who certified nurses assistants, the frontline workers in the nursing home who, you know, who get residents dressed, feed them, organize activities, really, you know, spend their days with the residents. Certified nursing assistants earn around 14 bucks an hour in the United States. It is a low-skill, entry-level job with high turnover. But at the Glebe, Pang says those workers are paid for 40 hours work if they work 30 hours and meet certain basic conditions, right? Not calling in sick at the last minute, um, you know, not taking breaks sort of longer than scheduled, uh, things like that. And what the Glebe has found is that, you know, when you move from eight-hour shifts to six-hour shifts, yeah, you actually have to hire more people and spend more on salaries because you always need nursing staff around. But what they found was that they spent, in their case, another $140,000 on salaries, but they saved $120,000 because they didn't have to pay temporary agencies or pay for recruiter fees because a workforce that previously had had an average turnover of something like 140%, after implementing the program, had an average turnover in the teens. And so you now, you know, you went from having to constantly replace people to having, you know, having a wait list. Um, There were also real improvements in quality of care as measured by number of slips and falls or abrasions or bed sores. All of those went way down. And so what that tells us is that moving nursing staff to six uh, six hour shifts meant that you know their lives became more predictable they had more time for recovery they were more you know they were much more likely to stay on the job and quality of care for residents also improved could we accomplish the same thing by um just ensuring that people had paid time off and paid parental leave um that's a good question. And I mean, I think that the that part of the value of the four-day week is that it creates incentives and constraints, both for employees and for companies. If you take it seriously as a goal, you know, you have a you end up with a company culture that is less likely to tolerate managers trying to call you into the office on weekends or expect you to take work home with you. And because it is, you know, it requires thinking about solutions to everything from how you can effectively spend your time to how you think about productivity in structural and organizational ways rather than as purely individual problems that you know, each of us have to solve for ourselves by ourselves. Mm. You know, that turns out to be a really powerful thing. Alex Pang's book on the four-day work week is called Shorter. 
While paid time off is no panacea for our overwork woes, it is the main tool companies in America have at their disposal, should they decide it's worth trying to help their employees find more balance. And tech CEO Ursula Mead says more and more companies are finding they really have no choice. We actually call it a bread and butter benefit, meaning if you're not getting this right today, you're really not... um, working hard enough to keep up with the the needs of talent and to compete for talent. Mead is the CEO and co-founder of In Her Sight. We are a company ratings platform designed specifically for women. She says paid time off and flexibility are top priorities for workers right now, especially women. I've worked in environments that have insufficient paid time off um, and it's miserable. It was some of the times that I was the saddest at work when it was part of the culture and the expectation that you have to be in the office by 8 a.m. And you really, if you if you wanted to um, make sure that you were um, putting putting the right foot forward, that you were staying as late as you as late as you could. All that mattered in that organization was um, was what they were going to get from me that day. Nothing about the other parts of my life that were meaningful, that might have needed attention, that made me who I was and made me able to be a strong contributor to the organization. So how much paid time off is sufficient? So I am a big proponent of unlimited paid time off. Um, one of the big myths... Wait, did you say unlimited? Unlim- like I could literally take as much paid time off as I want? Yes. Do you offer unlimited paid time off at In Her Sight? We do. We don't track anyone's uh, whereabouts, where they go, when they take it, how many hours, at what time. I couldn't think of any other way that I would want to um, support my employees than letting them know that I trust them to make the right decisions about the time that they need to take, when they need to take it, and they should feel completely comfortable prioritizing those needs. Because we know that employees who feel trusted are also going to be more excited and energized to come to work. They're going to feel better about the work that they're doing. And uh, the benefits to me really outweighed any of the potential risks or or costs of that. So you you haven't had you've never had a problem with an employee taking advantage of it. I I have yet to 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 encounter a problem with that. Um, That's not to say that that policy is right for every culture. um, But I think that when a company has that policy and it's working, it sends a strong signal about what that company actually values. It seems like it could create, though, some conflict within the organization if you have some individuals, you know, who have kids and are using the PTO more generously, more frequently than maybe some employees who don't have kids. Or someone's using it for a lot of really valid reasons, but that means that the rest of their team is having to pick up their load. Yeah, I I, I think that, that those are some of the fears that a lot of company leaders have when they're considering implementing something like this. It, it really comes down to what is communicated and whether or not there are clear expectations of how the policy is to be used. Making sure that you are able to do your job and you're able to um, deliver the results that are your responsibilities. When I talk about unlimited paid time off, um, th- one of the myths around it is, is that your employees just are going to s- stop coming to work, that they're just not going to come in, they're not going to do the work, they're not going to be there, uh, which actually one of the challenges of paid unlimited paid time off is that it's really critical that uh, leaders and employees set the right example for how to use the policy because uh, if they don't, you'll find that that employees take even less time off. A cynical business might even advertise unlimited paid vacation as a great perk, knowing full well that in a company culture where everyone is expected to be on call all the time, a lot of workers won't take any time off. Before Ursula Mead decided to offer unlimited paid time off at her own startup, she says she was fortunate to work at a company that got it right. I had lots of women in that organization, women and men, who were using 
the policies. They were using the flexibility regularly if it is not being used by the managers and the leaders and the decision makers in the organization, you can't expect any of the employees to feel comfortable using it themselves. And I had so many examples of colleagues who left to go pick up their kids from school when they needed to at three o'clock or four o'clock, who um, came in at 10 o'clock in the morning because they had to take their child to the doctor's office. It was it was something that was part of the culture. It wasn't something that, uh, and I've been in this situation, it wasn't something where you walked in and you tried to sort of sneak into your desk because you didn't want anyone to notice that you were gone. It's a signal from the company too that they trust their employees, that they're measuring them on the contributions that they make, not on the number of hours that they spend in their seats. We, we know specifically with, with women with children, especially under the age of 18, you need the flexibility or the time off or the um, option to sort of work from different locations to be able to accommodate the disproportionate level of work that you take on when it comes to caregiving, which is the reality of the gender dynamics in our country today that women do most of the work um, when it comes to to taking care of, of the family and uh, whether it's it's housekeeping and things like that or also actual caregiving um, and and they need to trust that their employee employers are measuring their work on their output and their contributions and not necessarily on the number of hours they can spend sitting at their desk in the office how do you think the traditional idea of 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 a productive worker who's ambitious in an American corporation who shows up before the boss, leaves after the boss, makes sure to do all of the glad handing, you know? How has that, do you think, affected the ability of women to succeed in the workplace? I think a lot of women would say that it has it has hindered their ability to advance and to be and to feel successful at work. Um, I think one of the things that we we can see in the numbers, and when I say the numbers, I mean things like the representation of women at the executive level. If we're talking about the C-suite or on the board level, or even through the the upper levels of the executive teams and a lot of industries, um, I think what what we see is that um, even though women make up more than fifty percent of the workforce and talent pool, we're still looking at sometimes the single digits in terms of representation at the top tiers. And I think that that some of that can be attributed to some of that old school mentality of this is how this is what success looks like and this is what you need to be able to do to sort of make it to the top under these circumstances. Mead says the pandemic forced a lot of companies to take a hard look at how much they really do trust their employees to get the job done. Businesses that have embraced flexible work options and more paid time off. They're the ones who have been able to more effectively keep their diversity, equity, and inclusion goals on track. We've had companies that work with us who were ready to declare, let's all get back into the office as we were still facing some Delta and we didn't even realize about Omicron. And they were they were making these decisions about returning to work and they they were using our data to see that that was going to hurt their ability to hire women and they have adjusted and they've decided, okay, we're actually gonna stay stay hybrid and we're gonna do that longer term. On a personal note, Mead says the pandemic made her think about her own work-life balance differently. Although balance isn't the word she uses. I have usually talked more about work-life integration. And I am one of those people that is often happier when I'm thinking about work at all different times of the day or all different days of the week. We have um, employees who, you know, as soon as the day is over, they want to turn on their Slack no notification, um, little Zs to say, don't notify me, I'm offline. And they focus, focus, focus at one time and then they relax and they really disconnect. And I totally get that and I appreciate that. But for me, I'm not one of those people that necessarily wants a divide 
between my work and my life, which is great because in the last two years, I have had no divide. I had a baby at the beginning of the pandemic. I have been juggling a um, having various kids at home while I'm trying to do work, juggling schedules with my husband and working from all different rooms of my own home. So um, more than ever, I have experienced work-life integration. And I would say this has been the first time where I've ever thought like, oh, maybe I should shut down my computer because I, I love to work. She says the extreme integration of her work and her home life during the pandemic helped her recognize there are some advantages to keeping boundaries between the two. I miss long periods of flow where I can be immersed in something for a really long time at work. And that's something that um, hasn't been as accessible to me with the conditions of the pandemic. That's actually what I miss more than um, taking a vacation. I'm a bit of a homebody. Ursula Mead is the CEO of the tech startup In Her Sight. So we've heard how working less can be good for employees and companies if it's done right. But let's broaden the lens just a bit here, finally. If we all spent less time on the job, would we be any better off as a society? I think that giving people back time that they can spend however they want is an unambiguous moral good. This is Alex Pang again. He's the four-day workweek guy. Think of it this way, right? If you're able to move your company to a four-day week, that means every seven years, you're giving every one of your workers another year of free time. Now, if you think about how valuable time with your children can be when they're young, or people who are no longer in your life, what would another year with them be worth to you? But what if we all take that extra day off and we waste it? I mean, if we're not doing anything necessarily great or good with our time. Well, okay. So is spending a day with your children great or good? I mean, in the sense that no one's going to put up a statue to you for that. Still, that is not time that you would look back on with any regret. And as a practical matter, um... People do shockingly wholesome things with their free time. You know, I mean, I've 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 been I've been studying this, and people do stuff like they exercise more and they spend more time with their families or doing community stuff. Um, there is a tendency for men to spend more time doing family things and for women to spend more of this time doing stuff for themselves or with each other. You know, you give people more time, people do amazingly good things with it. What would you do with a little more time? Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Cleon Wall and James Hoops with help from me and Ciara Hewlett. We had music and sound design by Trent Reimschusel, Jacob Molaski, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. Please be sure to like and subscribe to Top of Mind wherever you listen to the podcast. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. <laughs>